Welcome to War Room, the official podcast of the U.S. Army War College Online Journal, graciously supported by the Army War College Foundation. Please join the conversation at warroom.armywarcollege.edu. We hope you enjoy the program. Hello, and welcome to A Better Peace, the War Room podcast. I'm Jacqueline Whit, Professor of Strategy and the War Room podcast editor here at the U.S. Army War College. Thanks for joining us today. When we use the phrase great captain of military history, most people probably think about people who led field armies or directed combat actions. They're at the forefront of the action, calling the shots, taking risks, connecting battlefield success to strategic success, or maybe salvaging some sort of tactical failure. But today we're actually going to talk about a figure who doesn't quite fit that mold, but who does loom large in 20th century American military history, George Catlett Marshall. I'm joined in the studio today by Dr. Bill Johnson. He is a professor of military history and strategy at the U.S. Army War College and also the director of the military history program here. Bill, thanks for joining me today. My pleasure, Jackie. Thanks for having me. Great. So in the introduction, I suggested that George Marshall doesn't really have a traditional resume of who we might think of when we think of great captains. Uh, can you help us dig into this idea a little bit more by thinking about his biography? Like, What are the highlights that help us understand who George Marshall is? Well, to a large degree, you're right. He doesn't conform to what we would think of the great captains of history that Napoleon talked about. And so <clears throat> he's commissioned uh, into the infantry in 1901. He's a graduate of the Virginia Military Institute. His first assignment is in the Philippine Islands. Uh, again, like many officers of the day, uh, that was the active theater of operations. Uh, he's very quickly singled out as a very reliable, diligent, hardworking officer. Uh, he's sent to the cavalry school where he's the number one graduate. Uh, this then puts him into uh, what is the modern-day Command and General Staff College, where he is also the number one graduate. And even as a young lieutenant, he is asked to stay on as an instructor for three years. Uh, he continues to come to the attention of senior officers in the Army, and he is an aide-de-camp to a number of general officers. Uh, he goes back to the Philippines, um, 1911 through 1914, returning back to the United States, where, again, he's the aide-de-camp to a number of senior officers, so that by the time the United States enters World War I, he's located in New York, uh, which puts him in close proximity to John Pershing, who's going to command the American Expeditionary Force, and he's also uh, in contact with uh, Major General Seibert, who he'd worked for in a previous assignment, who's now going to command the 1st Infantry Division, which will be the first unit in the American Army to go to World War One. Okay, so so far his education, he's not a West Pointer, but he's coming from a military academy. He's got decent assignments as a junior officer. He gets recognized for being smart, like you said, and hardworking. And he's around people who matter. So where does his career start to deviate um, from from that like traditional sort of biography? So it's interesting. In, in World War One, he's the G3, the operations officer for the 1st Division and then a Corps, and then ultimately for the 1st United States Army. Uh, he is credited with all of the tactical, operational, and importantly, logistical planning for the U.S. Uh, 1st Offensive in the San Mihel to reduce the salient, and then the transfer of about 800,000 men uh, over many miles to the Muzagan, which is the final major campaign in the war. Uh, he then, based on this experience, uh, he's marked as the sort of 
stereotypical chief of staff, mm -hmm. chief operations officer. And from that point, uh, he becomes Pershing's aide. Uh, Pershing is the chief of staff of the Army, and he's Pershing's aide for five years. Then he goes into a number of interesting assignments that take him away from what would be the norm. He helps. Uh, he goes to China. Uh, initially, where he's with the 15th Infantry Regiment. He comes back into the United States, where he's almost shunted into what would, uh, in modern parlance, be almost dead-end assignments. He's assigned to work with a number of civilian organizations, with the National Guard in multiple assignments. He's put in charge of constructing the uh, Civilian Conservation Corps camps, uh, eventually gets a brigade command, and is probably destined for retirement as a colonel when he petitions Pershing, uh, who makes an argument on his behalf that Marshall should be promoted to brigadier general. Okay, so he does have this champion in Pershing, and that, that's probably, yes, he does. And so, probably important. Probably jumping ahead a little bit, but uh, Marshall has a very well-earned reputation for being nonpartisan, and and I would I would uh, emphasize the nonpartisan aspect. But he's he is political. He knows the politics of the army, mm -hmm. and he knows the politics of Washington D.C. He knows who he can reach out to and who he can't. Okay, and he's been he's been around. So he's been around not only army people but also. Some civilians, it sounds like. And, and again, in these sort of dead-end or unconventional assignments, he's going to have a maybe a broader network. Sure. Local politicians, like. state politicians. He's Because of his work in the CCC and with the National Guard, he's introduced to local politics. And he has individuals that he can rely upon. Um, he's eventually brought to Washington based on Pershing's recommendation. He's promoted. And he moves into the uh, planning section of the War Department general staff. Uh, shortly thereafter, he's named the deputy chief of staff of the Army. And on, ironically, 1 September 1939, he's sworn in as the chief of staff of the United States okay, Army. So that's a that's a uh, important date in military history, right? So um, Marshall has this rise through the staff rank. So again, if we think about traditional great captain's narrative, their commanders, what is... What does it mean that Marshall is part of the staff uh, for really for the duration, I guess, of World War II? He is part of the staff, but also at, at the time, uh, again, differing from current practice. He's also, in essence, uh, though he doesn't hold the title, he's the commander of the United States Army, mm -hmm. which at this point includes the Army Air Corps and eventually Army Air Force. And so as a sort of, um, as one of his biographers referred to him as the global commander, he oversees all of the army in all of the theaters in World War II, from the Southwest Pacific through the Middle East, Persia, North Africa, Italy, um, into Western Europe, and uh, all U.S. Army forces in the Pacific. So he is the probably quintessential number one person who has oversight of all of the army on a global perspective. Okay. And at that scale, what does it mean for him to be a great captain? So um, just an example, when Marshall is sworn in as the chief of staff of the army on 1 September 39, the army, which includes the Army Air Corps, is about 189,000 people. Uh, by spring of 1945, there are 8.2 million men and women in the United States Army and Army Air Force. Uh, that's just a staggering number increase over the period of about six years. And that includes the idea of how do you recruit 
How do you mm-hmm. train? How do you build the bases? How do you deploy the forces? How are all of those things done that creates this 8.2 million person fighting force that goes on to win World War right. II? So how does, how, does, how does he do it? Well, he empowers, first of all, he identifies key subordinates. Uh, Marshall historically is known to have kept a little black book. And on one side of that black book were all of the people that he wanted and was going to follow. And on the other side were those that he was going to get rid of. Uh, Shortly after becoming chief of staff, uh, he started eliminating those on the bad side of the black book. and like that conti- just getting them out of the army. Getting them out of the army. Yes, I'm sorry. Like- <laughs> only, only in that manner. <laughs> but he also promoted uh, individuals that he'd had his eye on. Many of these he'd served with before, some in World War I, some when he was the assistant commandant at the infantry school, people like Joseph Stilwell, Omar Bradley, Walter Beetle Smith, uh, were the types of individuals that he relied upon where he would give what we would call today very much mission command, uh, authority and responsibility, and the resources to go with that. And he relied on those key people to make things happen for mm-hmm. the Army. Now, he wasn't always successful. Some of the people on the good side of his book did not perform well during World War II. Uh, and he had a little bit of a, a blind side, I might say, in terms of being ultra-loyal to those types of individuals. Okay. Others might remark that he saw... Goodness where even failure had resulted, and he placed people in positions where they could succeed and support the Army. So it sounds like he's identifying sort of the right people in the right place for the right jobs often, not not always, uh, but often enough. Um, are there other sort of secrets to Marshall's success in this role as the Army is expanding and growing and, and gaining missions? I think it goes back to one of my earlier comments about his nonpartisanship but being very political. In order to get the army that he believes the nation needs, uh, he works very closely with Congress. He knows the key representatives in the House. He knows key senators. He's called to testify on behalf of the government very frequently. He's known for his absolute integrity and honesty. He pulls no punches. Uh, He tells them what he believes the army and the nation needs. Sometimes that's at odds with President Franklin Roosevelt. And it's interesting uh, that even in October of 1941, when the first draft law was beginning to expire, Roosevelt is looking at reducing the size of the army. And Marshall goes in and makes very impassioned pleas before Congress about how this is not the time to be reducing the army. Congress passes a uh, re-enactment of the civil service, I'm sorry, civil service election, and by a vote, a margin of one vote. Sometimes it really is a one vote, right? Sometimes it is, and there are a number of people who will say that the Democrats had counted the votes very carefully and it wasn't as close as it seemed and people could vote because they knew they would win. But at the same time, others note that Marshall was critical in making that vote happen. Great. So Marshall is good at many things. Are there things that Marshall is not good at? Uh, I think Marshall would have said he was not good at controlling his temper. He was known for an icy reserve. Uh, He was a very forbidding man, strong personality, uh, well noted for his desire to have short, concise staff recommendations and people who are willing to carry out mission guidance. Uh, If you didn't display those things, he frequently got rid of you, uh, moved you to a different Mm -hmm. position. Now, uh, 
alongside that, I, I would be remiss if I didn't make the point that in addition to being the Army Chief of Staff, uh, he was the de facto leading military advisor. There was no Joint right. Chiefs of Staff at this time. That doesn't come into effect informally until January of 42, uh, in law in 1947. But Marshall was the acknowledged leader of that group of individuals, and he was also a leading member of what was called the Combined Chiefs of Staff, which was both the British and Americans who met at the chiefs of service level and at the chief of government level frequently through the war to provide the large-scale policy and guidance. And Marshall was an instrumental factor in the outcomes of the decisions of those bodies. I'm going to ask you for purely a speculative opinion, which is, do you think an officer in the mold of George C. Marshall um, could rise through the ranks of the U.S. Army today? I do. Uh, from the from the standpoint of Marshall has all the characteristics that we would want in an aspiring officer. He's very professional. He knows his profession. He's tactically proficient. He is diligent. He's hardworking. Uh, several times during his young officership, he works himself to the point of physical exhaustion, almost to a physical breakdown. He displays the dedication to duty and mission that I think would stand him very well these days. Interestingly, I think, uh, you know, when I outlined the sort of odd positions he had, I think in a modern army like today, he wouldn't have been placed in those positions. Mm -hmm. He would have been put in those types of jobs and assignments that would have contributed to his uh, continued rise inside the profession. Because he was noted to be hardworking and smart and capable and competent, his career track might look I think it would probably different. look similar to what had happened today. Okay. It's very interesting. He, he first met General, eventually, uh, General of the Air Force, Hap Arnold, in the Philippines in the 19, uh, I think it was 19... 11 or 12, somewhere in there. And uh, in Arnold's autobiography, he notes that he went home after meeting Marshall and watching him in the field exercises. Uh, Arnold told his wife that he'd met the future chief of staff of the Army, and he had no doubt. Mm -hmm. So his, his skill is sort of well-recognized and, and easy to spot. Um, do you think if, if George Marshall were sort of rising through the ranks of the Army today and had a more traditional career path from command position and, and ever-increasing levels of responsibility. Do you think he would have suffered from not having those sort of weird assignments in the middle of his career? Well, I, I think one of the interesting things about the mid-career uh, assignments he had was I think it prepared him well for working with a citizen soldiery. Uh, mm -hmm. Again, 8.2 million people in the Army and Army Air Force uh, most of those were civilian soldiers. The overwhelming number of them were draftees. Right. About, I think the final number was about 62%. So Marshall had a very firm understanding of what the citizen soldier was like. Uh, he'd also, from his World War I experience, had seen what happened when you sent soldiers into battle without adequate preparation. So he understood how to deal with the drafty soldier or the, the very recent civilian soldier and how to make sure that their welfare was taken care of, that they were adequately, adequately equipped and trained, and that they were placed in positions where they were able to carry out their missions. 
Uh, not least of that was the idea of uh, making sure that they had the right leaders, whether that was at the non-commissioned officer, uh, commissioned officer, or general officer mm-hmm. ranks. If you could pick um, sort of one moment or anecdote or story from Marshall's career that, that you think best exemplifies uh, his identity maybe as a great captain of, of military history, what do you think you would you would pick? That's a really difficult uh, let me see if I can pull together a couple. That's what I didn't. I didn't prep you for. I'm sorry. Yeah, that's all right. A uh, <laughs> couple anecdotes. Uh, when he's uh, he's the acting chief of staff of the Army before he's actively sworn in, he's at a meeting in the White House. And uh, the president asks him a, a question and it says, well, don't you think that's right, George? And uh, General Marshall did not like being called George, uh, even by the president. And he made that known. Uh, but at the time, he said, no, Mr. President, I don't agree with that at all. And then proceeded to mm. outline why that was the case. Uh, when the meeting was over, uh, all of Marshall's friends that had been in the meeting congratulated him on his former career right. and noted that he probably wouldn't be going forward. But I think this is an example of Marshall's ability to speak truth to power as he saw it. Um, there are also a number of occasions throughout the course of the war where Marshall has to give very hard advice to the president. Uh, he's not in favor, Marshall, for example, is not in favor of going to the invasion of North Africa. Uh, Roosevelt, as the commander-in-chief, makes That's that decision. That's a contentious decision among the Americans and the Brits. Very much so. But Marshall, I think one of the great attributes he had was he could execute a decision that he disagreed with with the same degree of intensity and professionalism as one that Mm -hmm. he agreed to. He very desperately wanted to command the invasion of Northwest Europe. Uh, and when Roosevelt asked him about that question, uh, Marshall replied that that it was not his purview to decide. That was the president's, and that Marshall would abide by any decision that Franklin Roosevelt finally made. As we know, Roosevelt chose Dwight Eisenhower, one of Marshall's protégés, and eased the pain on Marshall a little bit by saying, I couldn't sleep if you were outside of Washington. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you're more valuable to me here than commanding the field army. And I, I think this is part of the difference why, even though he's not a great captain in the traditional sense, the cumulative nature of his work in the military was the day after day hard work of building an army and transporting it literally to the four points of the sure. globe so that the what we would call today regional combatant commanders could exercise the great captain skills. Could execute skills. The, the, the strategic plan. Yeah, I think part of this is about scale, right? So uh, even the largest armies of 18th, sort of 17th and 18th century and 19th century Europe are going to pale in comparison uh, to the numbers that we're, that we're talking about here, the global reach of campaigns. Um, people are all over the world. And so that some of that coordinating that a great captain in the field might have done earlier is going to have to be done by someone else, uh, maybe back at home. And that back at home, it's not to say those, because those decisions were not reached on the battlefield, that they weren't difficult. Uh, Again, it's about priorities. There, even given the United States economy in 1943-45, there isn't enough to do everything. 
And you have to make very strong decisions about where you're going to take risk, where you're going to make the main effort. And in those areas where you're taking risk, oftentimes people's lives are at stake because of it. And so Marshall felt the burden of those deaths very seriously. He made sure that President Roosevelt received routine casualty reportings where the killed and wounded were always annotated in red ink Mm -hmm. to draw it out and make sure. To make sure that they don't forget what's what's at stake. Um, so to leave our, our listeners, what are, you, what are the things that contemporary um, military officers at the rank of, say, colonel and, and above can take away from studying Marshall and his career and his um, sort of professional identity? So I, I would, a whole host of things, and, and we haven't even touched on his post-World War II, where he's the Secretary of State and the Secretary of right. Defense, winner of the Nobel Prize. And so the things that I would argue, um, the intense study of the profession, the professional approach to all of his activities, his nonpartisanship and approach— he was a true student of his profession. He was a student of himself. He understood his own weaknesses. He was self-aware. He was willing to delegate not only responsibility but also authority and the resources to go with that to make sure that his subordinates were empowered to carry out their mission. Uh, where failures occasionally occurred, uh, they were not always career-ending for the officer. He frequently moved people into different positions where the Army or the Army Air Force could take advantage of their talents. So I don't think there's any one single trait, but Marshall had the capacity for vision beyond the day-to-day. A story about the establishment of uh, military governments. Uh, In early 1943, Marshall calls in Major General Hildring and says, I'm going to put you in charge of the American civil government, military government. I know that's not what you want, Mm -hmm. but you need to do this because we might win the war, but you can lose it. Right. So he sees that it's not simply about the fighting. It's about the victory that comes after the winning. And that planning starts very early and requires strategic vision while not ignoring the day-to-day and the stuff on the ground that's happening in the present moment. Yes. Another example is shortly after the United States enters the war, Marshall brings his old friend John Macaulay Palmer back on active duty to begin planning the demobilization of the Army that hasn't Mm -hmm. been created yet. Right. So I think this gives us a a nice sort of ending point. Maybe we'll have to sit down and do part two about Marshall's uh, post-war career, but I'd like to thank you for joining me today and for talking about George Marshall uh, as part of our Great Captain series. It's been my pleasure. If you've enjoyed this podcast and want to hear even more great content, subscribe to A Better Peace, the War Room podcast at iTunes, Google Play, or your favorite subscription service. And that concludes our program. Thank you for listening. The views expressed in this podcast reflect those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views, policies, or positions of the U.S. Army or the Department of Defense. Let us know what you think. Provide us your feedback, comments, or suggestions through our webpage at warroom.armywarcollege.edu. And have a great day.